DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, wake-up call for Europe. Political scientist Kas Mudder shares his lessons from the Dutch elections. First of all, don't underestimate the far right. If you give them opportunities, most far right parties today will make good use of them. Uh, second of all, do not normalize the far right because the far right fundamentally is a different party than many most of the others. From Norway with love, London's Trafalgar Square receives its annual Christmas gift and where did all the money go? Germany grapples with a 60 billion euro sized hole in its national budget. The winds of change are here. That was how Viktor Orban greeted the news of Geert Wilders' shock election victory in Dutch national elections last week. Since then, the far-right anti-immigrant politicians' attempts to form a government have flailed. His pick to oversee coalition negotiations was forced to resign over fraud allegations, and first the Conservative VVD party and then the centre-right NSC party have said they are not willing to form a coalition with him. Wilders has indicated that his preference would now be a minority government with himself as Prime Minister. But Leaving political speculations aside, we wanted to take a moment to look in more detail at what exactly happened last week in the Netherlands and why. Those are questions of importance not only for the Netherlands but for Europe as a whole as it approaches a crucial election year with national elections to be held in various countries including France and European parliamentary elections scheduled for June. To unpick it all for us, I spoke to Cass Mudder, Dutch political scientist and Stanley Wade Shelton Professor of International Affairs at the University of Georgia, USA. Well, I think just like the Swedish elections, the Dutch elections were like a textbook case of how not to engage with the far right. First of all, outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte had decided to break up his coalition over the issue of migration, assuming that his party, the Conservative VVD, would kind of own that issue and then win. At the same time, his successor, Denham Yisselgus, had decided to break with Rutte's long-standing position of not to work with uh, the far right, and particularly Geert Wilders, and had clearly reached out to him. And that combination made Geert Wilders' key issue the top issue in the election, and Geert Wilders, for the first time again, an acceptable partner. And as a consequence, a lot of people who would normally vote for the VVD because they thought that Wilders would not really have a chance to form a government could now vote truly with their heart. On top of that, the VVD has been in government for most of the last two decades and clearly hasn't solved the immigration issue in the eyes of people who are concerned about it. So it was just really a horrible setup from the perspective of particularly the Conservative Party. 
In the US, there has been a lot of discourse, a lot of conversations about how to cover Donald Trump. The idea being that Trump isn't a normal politician, that even negative headlines are going to act like oxygen to him and to his campaign. Is Wilders a similar phenomenon? Wilders is far more complex. First of all, Wilders is a professional politician. Uh, he will soon be the longest sitting MP in the Dutch parliament. He has been in parliament for 25 years. He is also actually a very skilled politician, not just in terms of rhetoric, but also in terms of legislation. And he has entered legislation with a broad variety of parties and, and sometimes successful. At the same time, he also has at times this kind of scorching social media discourse. For example, a while back he tweeted that journalists, with some exceptions, are the scum of the earth, which is very Trumpian. He's also spoken about the fake parliament, etc., etc. So he's, he's very complex, but he is also, to a certain extent, just part of Dutch politics. I mean, almost no voter is not familiar with Geert Wilders, and anyone under 35 has not known the world without him. That also means that actually Wilders was for a long time uninteresting to the media because he has been around for so long. What made him interesting again now was to a certain extent that some of the other parties were, populist parties were less interesting, and because for the first time in a long time there was now a debate about whether Wilders was acceptable as a coalition partner. And that led to the whole conversation about that he had become milder and uh, that he was actually a nice person, which included even some uh, media coverage of him cuddling his cats. Well, cat cuddling aside, um, is he uh, fit for a coalition? Well, sure, he's fit. I said he's a, he's a skilled politician. The problem is actually much more... Is anyone else in that party fit to govern? Because notoriously, the party has only one official member, Geert Wilders. Everyone else is kind of a hired help. And most of the MPs, while being among the longest serving, they are not the best and brightest. On top of that, because it is really a one-man party, they are not particularly responsible for anything. And so being by far the biggest party, he will have to come up with I mean, at least four or five highly qualified people that are acceptable to his coalition partners for important positions. And I think that is much more the problem than he himself as the prime minister. Indeed, and I mean, that's a problem that we saw directly on Monday when his first pick to oversee the coalition uh, talks process then had to step back because of uh, fraud accusations. Absolutely, and it's also important to keep in mind that the Netherlands went through this in the early 21st century with the Lispim Fortuyn, which entered government after its leader had been assassinated. And that government fell within three months because of the total incompetence of the LPF ministers. And so the VVD, who was part of that, will think about this issue. And they don't want to get into this kind of like clown show uh, again.
That's really interesting. Just sort of staying with this issue of um, media coverage, in terms of uh, of our own coverage, for example, I can tell you that um, in the run-up to the elections, we had a Q&A and a profile piece on uh, Peter Omtsicht. So we were very much part of a, a sort of a liberal media that gave really a lot of coverage to this outsider centrist candidate who in actual fact came forth. Were we sort of complicit in a, a mass act of wishful thinking? What, what happened there? No, not, not in that respect. I mean, Peter Omtsicht was the main story up until election day. And even though he came forth, it is the second best result for a new party in Dutch history. And so his score would have been the major story had PVV not come in that strong. On top of that, the PVV's rise was only really visible in the last days before the election. So while Omtzigt had gone down, actually the elections were very much about dissatisfaction. And one of the reasons why the polls probably were wrong, because there was such a large number of Dutch people who had not decided yet what to vote um, on election day. And the reason is that they were just not happy. So yes, Omtzigt was the story. The sentiments around him were the story. I don't think that was the major problem of media coverage. If you had to leave me with a few key sort of lessons, um, what would they be? First of all, don't underestimate the far right. If you give them opportunities, most far right parties today will make good use of them. Uh, Second of all, do not normalize the far right because the far right fundamentally is a different party than many, most of the others because they are inherently against liberal democracy, which has direct consequences also for the role of the media, which can only really fully function within a liberal democracy. The third one is if you make the elections about the issues and the frames of the far right, the far right wins. And finally, in terms of coverage, it is important that the coverage is not only about the issues of the far right. Like what we see in many interviews with the far right is that the far right is only asked about immigration or about the EU. They're hardly ever asked about their plans on healthcare or their plans on housing or their plans on education. All issues that are very important to large parts of the electorate. And if these parties go into government, they will have a say on that. Even the developed positions that they have on the EU and on immigration often have very far-reaching consequences, which are hardly ever really spelled out in the campaign. I was talking to the Dutch political scientist, Kas Mudder. He is the Stanley Wade Shelton Professor of International Affairs at the University of Georgia, USA. Expect more hard-hitting political analysis to come as we investigate the 60 billion euro hole in Germany's finances. But first, it's Advent and in London's Trafalgar Square, that can only mean one thing. The arrival of the giant Christmas tree, which Norway gifts the British capital each year in thanks for the country's support during World War II. Now, if ever there was a story for a Norwegian-born correspondent with a British regional accent, then this was it. So we sent Lars Bavanga off to a forest near Oslo to oversee the ceremonial felling of the tree. 
So we've just come about 40 minutes on a minibus from the city centre uh, up into the forest that surrounds Oslo and now we're just walking the last few hundred metres to where this year's Trafalgar Christmas tree has been spotted and is now about to be chopped down. Yeah, it's the first time I've come here into the forest outside Oslo to uh, cut down the tree that will stand in Trafalgar Square. Jan Thompson has been the British ambassador to Norway since April and is here today to represent the nation that has been gifted a tree from Oslo every year since 1947. I think it's really important. Obviously, it dates back to the Second World War and the support that the UK gave to Norway during that war. Um, But it's a kind of perfect symbol of the close friendship between our two countries. And that friendship just gets deeper and deeper as the years go on. Over the years, this tree-felling ceremony has grown into a proper pre-Christmas event where locals can turn up to watch, enjoy cinnamon buns and drink coffee brewed on open fires. Any minute now, the Mayor of Oslo, Anna Lindbo, will officially welcome everyone. The tree to be cut down today is about 19 metres tall and around 70 years old. And I have to say, I think it looks rather beautiful. In Trafalgar Square, the tree will spread its light to the people of London and everyone passing through the Christmas season. I'm Knut Johansson, forest manager of this part of Oslo Municipality's property. How do you pick, out of all of these millions of trees, the one to travel to London? This tree is a tree that has special branches and form so it uh, looks nice at the Trafalgar Square and uh, this tree has the ideal height and form for this year. Next year we have another tree that uh, have to grow um, half a meter uh, more. Okay so you already know uh, about a year in advance which is going to be the one? Uh, yes that's right. Now, picking the perfect shape and height is one thing. Getting it to London in good shape is another. In recent years, some Londoners have been less than impressed because the tree has lost some branches during the long transport. Here are a few who spoke to the BBC last year. It looks a bit miserable and a bit droopy. (laughs) We're wondering what we've done to Norway to uh, upset them. It is kind of thin looking. (laughs) It's drab and sad and very disappointing. It looks like it's, you know, I've seen better days. Those gathered here in the Oslo forest agree that this year's tree is very beautiful indeed. We've also been told that the spruce will be looked after extra carefully during its journey to London. Representing the British capital here today is Patricia McAllister, Lord Mayor of Westminster. I mean, it's just so impressive being here, isn't it? It's magical, this tradition, isn't it? It's just so special for Norway and the UK, or Trafalgar Square, of course, yeah. So you've just laid eyes on the tree for the first time this year's tree. What do you think? It is spectacular. It's the only word. I mean, look at it. And in the last couple of years, some people have been critical once the tree is up in Trafalgar Square. It looks a bit scrawny after the long journey. Uh, Are you confident that uh, this one's going to look beautiful? But it's going to be perfect, I'm sure. As perfect as a real tree can be. I'm confident looking at this tree, it's going to be absolutely wonderful.
So it's time for the ceremonial part of the tree chopping, done with a two-person cross-cut saw operated today by the Oslo Mayor Anna Limbo and Lord Mayor of Westminster Patricia McAllister. I say ceremonial because this method looks good in photos, but it would probably take until evening to cut through this thick trunk with a handsaw. All respect to the Mayor of Oslo and the Lord Mayor of Westminster, but it's time for the professionals to take over. So the tree is actually attached to a huge crane from the top, so it's suspended. As soon as the uh, saw has finished, it'll dangle rather than fall, uh, further protecting it from breakage. And there she goes, lifted off the ground and onto a trailer, ready to drive down to the coast, onto a ferry, and she'll be on her way to Trafalgar, where the lighting ceremony will be in the first week of December. Thank you to the children. It's fantastic managing to sing and eating cinnamon balls at the same time. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you. And a very big thank you to our very own Lars Bavanga there as well. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. On Thursday, the German government lost a key climate case brought by environmental groups. A Berlin court ordered the government to adopt an immediate action programme after failing to meet its own climate goals in the transport and building sectors. Now that is going to be a hard task following a separate constitutional court ruling from earlier in the month, which ruled that the government had acted illegally when it transferred 60 billion euros of unused borrowing capacity from a pot aimed at fighting the COVID-19 pandemic to a climate and transformation fund. The resultant hole in the national budget represents a major, perhaps even an existential, challenge for Chancellor Olaf Scholz and his already embattled coalition government. So much so that when our political correspondent Thomas Sparrow spoke to me earlier, it was from a Berlin political landscape which was still very much reeling from the fallout. It was a shock here in Berlin. It was a shock for the government and for other politicians in Germany. What it essentially means is that the government's climate action budget is essentially 60 billion euros short. The big questions here are how is the government going to manage to reach some of the key goals that the government actually promised that they would try and achieve when they came into power in 2021? How are they going to reach that without uh, falling into a lot of new debt? And we can go into this issue of debt in a second because it's key to understanding how Germany works nowadays. Chancellor Scholz, when he was talking to the parliament uh, only on Wednesday, he basically said that the top court's budget ruling is a new reality 
for Germany. Well, let's just stay with uh, that first question that you outlined for me there, Thomas. Uh, what options does the government have at this stage? I mean, 60 billion. It's, it's incredible. It is incredible. You must remember that when this current government came to power in December 2021, it came to power with many, many promises, with the promise to basically modernize the German economy, to focus on key infrastructure, to tackle climate change, to help key businesses and key industries to be fit for the future. And the question now, and by the way, I don't have all the answers to those questions, neither does the government, is how to make sure that those promises can still be kept while at the same time obviously respecting the ruling of Germany's highest court. There are some discussions underway. There are some issues that are being planned. But to be fairly honest, I think what bothers many Germans nowadays is the fact that there are still not many answers and that the government has been, let's say, not very clear with its communication on what what they'd like to achieve and how. Some of the options that, that are being discussed is reforming so Germany's so-called debt break, or also calling a sort of state of emergency, as they did with the coronavirus pandemic or with the war in Ukraine, that would allow the German government to basically borrow more money. Now, this debt break is also at the heart of the whole discussion, and also at the heart of the whole impact, because it is enshrined in Germany's constitution, the debt break, and it basically limits... Right, now, hang on, wait, wait. So this this is really unusual. It, it is actually very unusual because only a few, very few, of the advanced economies in the world have such a debt break. Um, and it basically limits the amount that the German government can borrow to finance its policies, its main priorities. It is something that's in Germany you call the Schwarze Null, the black zero. And um, several finance ministers have tried to keep that. In other words, not acquire uh, any new debt that goes beyond what is legally uh, accepted or legally required. Austerity politics, effectively, was something that Germany was very, very keen not so long ago to impose on other countries. And now there's a, is there a certain irony being felt that it's coming up against its own desire to find a way round this Schwarze Null, this uh, black zero that, you, that you're talking about. Absolutely, because this is something that goes well beyond Germany's borders. Germany is Europe's powerhouse. It is a very important economy for the European Union. So basically, when Germany has any financial struggle or it has any budget woes, it is something that may have an impact beyond Germany's borders in the wider European Union. But the second element why it's important in the EU is because Germany was in the past, especially during the Greek financial crisis and the financial crisis that affected several countries in the southern part of Europe, was a sort of uh, keeper of fiscal responsibility, telling how those countries should deal with their budgets and their finances and so on. And what's happening now is sort of schadenfreude. Uh, You're seeing some of those countries in the south and politicians from there basically say that Germany is getting a taste of its own medicine. And concrete example on that, there were reports many years ago that German officials had suggested that Greece should sell some of its islands to finance its uh, problems, to deal with its financial problems. And now you're hearing actually from some Greek politicians that Germany should do the same, that Germany should sell some of its islands to make sure that they can uh, fill that gap in its in its finances. No one expects Germany to sell its islands, but it does give an idea of how this crisis here in Germany has an impact beyond Germany's borders.
Our political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow, there. For more news from the German capital, check out DW's webpages or download our breaking news app. We have a half hour of Euroculture coming up for you next. That's all here on Inside Europe with me, Kate Laycock, in Germany. You need money for the meter, money for the toes. Don't turn on the heater, daddy's on the dough. They tell me that the devil pays good money for your soul. We don't got no dough. Tell me there's a dollar in the pocket of your jeans. Need money for the baby, the bacon and the beans. I'd buy you a dozen roses, but I just don't have the means. We don't got no dough. Sorry, Mr. Landlord, I cannot pay the rent. Run down to the bank and ask them where my money went. Then come back and tell me just who overspent. Mr. Let me tell you, I blame the government. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We have three cultural stories coming up for you this half hour. The first from Ukraine, where a brand new arts venue has opened up in the midst of war. The second from Romania, where earthquake legislation is forcing small businesses to shut up shop. I initially tried keeping it a secret from, from the staff, but eventually I, I had to tell them that uh, we have this insecurity and we might be shut down at any point. And the third, from France, which is wondering, where have all the drinkers gone? Quelle horreur. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. Now, the opening of a new arts venue is always a nerve-wracking time in the life of a cultural director. But when that venue is being opened in the midst of a war, the stakes are so much higher. Earlier this week, I spoke to Bojena Polenska, executive director of Jam Factory, a new arts centre which has just opened up in the Ukrainian city of Lviv. The venue's name is both a nod to spontaneous improvisation and to the building's history. Having been built as a distillery, it was also for a time a factory for the production of jam. A space then full of history and surrounded by history in the making, as Bojena Polenska is only too aware. We never hesitated that we have to open uh, the art center despite the war. For us, um, to open the art center is um, also the way of uh, resilience, not to giving up all that we dreamt about, but to go on. The vision of the jam factory was to create a place for artists to meet and to develop, but also a place that can reflect on important issues in the society. And um, I mean, in terms of the response that you've had from people coming in, in the opening weeks, what's that been like? Actually, it was a bit unexpected. During one day, over 3,400 people visited the jam factory. And it was a huge number of people that were wandering around, standing in line to get into the contemporary art exhibition, to get into cafe, and were interacting. And uh, they were sharing 
so many kind words um, thanking us for doing this. And it felt great as if like for a moment uh, that we came back or moved uh, forward to our future, which we are hoping will come soon. Maybe, Bajena, I could ask you to act as tour guide for me for a, a moment and sort of uh, take our listeners on a, a little tour of the museum. If I were if I were to be able to transport myself to Lviv, what, uh, what would greet me? Well, uh, first of all, um, you would uh, come into the former industrial neighborhood, uh, which still is uh, very slowly developing. It's a very interesting uh, story that stands behind for this um, building. Originally was a um, distillery, alcohol factory, which was built by the Jewish family in the late uh, 19th century. And actually, in the, at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, they decorated um, with a neo-Gothic style a tower and the facade of the factory. And for many people, for a long time, uh, it looked like a castle. So <clears throat> you would stand in front of a not typical building, then you would enter to the cozy yard. And as a visitor, uh, you could go directly to the reception where you can get into the contemporary art exhibition or cafe. Or you can turn right into the your right side and you would get into the old um, tower uh, where a bar and a historical exhibition uh, are located. Can we maybe dive into the opening contemporary exhibition in a little bit more detail? What's it called and what are the, the pieces in there that have really resonated with you and with your visitors? It's called Our Years, Our, our Words, Our Losses, Our Searches, Our Us curated um, by three Ukrainian curators, Boris Filonko, Natalia Matsenko, and um, Katerina Yakovlenko. And um, all of the narratives that are presented at the exhibition talks about um, personal experiences, community experiences, looking uh, back in history and um, uh, trying to find some connections of what is happening now and in the past. It reflects all of these words in the title. They are reflecting um, about uh, us, about uh, what's been what's been lost, what we are searching for, and how we are as a community dealing and coping with everything. There are only Ukrainian artists, uh, mainly contemporary, but also older works. Also in the exhibition, like it's also the, uh, in the branding of the exhibition, uh, you will not see a number of works and only places where this art uh, work was supposed to be. And these are works which are in Russia that been stolen. Which is the piece, Bajena, which has touched you the most? Oh, that's a difficult, actually, question, because I like um, a lot of um, 
a lot of works.、Um, it's a horrible question. It's it's like asking a teacher who their favorite student is. Sorry, <laughs> very undiplomatic yes, of me. Yes, that's right. <laughs>、um, is there is there, is yeah, there perhaps I, a, a a work that、um, that has resonated with your personal experience?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would mention、um, it's a costume for Invader. Uh, it has a lot of irony there, and、um, and also reminds us about a story which was famous uh, when um, the Russian army invaded Kherson region, and、uh, one lady she offered to the Russian invader、uh, that here you are. Sunflower seeds. You could put put it in your pocket, and maybe at least sunflowers would grow. And、uh, this artist、um, Anna Zvyhintseva, she is somehow modeling this transparent、um, military costume. You can see it's like a plastic one,、um, and actually trying to say that you know you cannot really hide who you are. I like this kind of. Irony, and also from the way she presented that transparency of yeah, we know who you are. You you cannot hide, but also this coping with that and being re- resilient. I just wanted to sort of circle back to this idea of you know opening a new cultural venue in in the midst of a war because I imagine that you know for you in in your sort of directorial position that will have entailed work and planning like working out how do we protect these works how do we protect this collection should we have to evacuate. Um, yeah, that's one of the、uh, toughest decision we had to make. On the one hand, our art center we've got basement, which we've been、uh, planning、uh, much earlier before the full scale invasion started, and.、Um, And、now there are five、uh, five rooms where we present uh, art, uh, so uh, in a way they are protected in case of、um, drones attack or missile attack. But those that are on the ground floor, of course, it's a huge risk. But somehow. Most of the artists or owners of of the artworks agreed、um, to give it to us, and、uh, we are actually responsible if something happens. We are located in the west of the country, and、uh, we we have from time to time air raid alarm and attacks. But somehow we are much less in danger, and we can work and present and hope that maybe it won't be the case. You've got a platform from which to dream of the future. Oh yes, I think we are co-creating this future、uh, at the moment, and this is what we've been dreaming. Despite everything, we are creating that future together. I was speaking to Bejena Polenska, executive director of Jam Factory Arts Center, which has opened in Lviv, Ukraine, and which is supported by funds provided by the historian and cultural philanthropist Dr. Harold Binder. Now, if I tell you that we are off to Bordeaux next, you might assume that our next story is going to be about wine, and you'd be right. All is not well in France's biggest winemaking region. However, faced with a historic decline in the drinking of red wine, especially among younger drinkers, grape growers are grubbing up vines in order to lower production.
Bordeaux's most prestigious, most expensive wines, your Saint-Emilion, your Pomerol and your Margot, are doing okay. But thousands of the winemakers who produce the bulk of Bordeaux's 850 million bottles of wine per year are suffering with huge unsold stock and huge debt. John Lawrenson reports. We're in four hectares of vines that have belonged to our family for five generations. I remember planting them with my grandfather when I was little. So it's strange to think that these vines are going to be pulled up. Bastien Mercier, 35, who owns with his father the Mercier vineyard near the Bordeaux village of Camiron. This autumn, some 1,000 Bordeaux winemakers like him will grub up 10% of their vines in a bid to bring supply in line with falling demand. La France, c'est le vin. C'est le pays du vin, du pain. France is wine. It's the country of wine, bread, meat and cheese. People who know how to live, how to eat and drink well. So we're terribly worried because wine consumption is declining drastically. We've even started asking ourselves, where are the French? Where is French identity? Where did we go wrong? I think the answer is that we failed to educate the new generation to appreciate these things. Here, we're in the oldest part of the wine cellar, 1837. The whole cellar is full. It should be empty. There are 31,000 litres in that vat. And this one won two gold medals, Bordeaux Red, I've got more than half a million litres, which represents about 650,000 bottles, several years' production. If I don't sell it, then I intend to drink it. We went through a period of great sadness. Everything seemed completely black. In the evenings, my father and I cried. In October last year, we were declared insolvent. In December, we went into receivership. We were getting letters and phone calls from our creditors every day. Our checkbook, credit card and bank account were blocked. It's then that you can do something stupid, when your customers no longer come to see you, your friends even, as if you had the plague. That's why many farmers choose to say nothing and die in silence. My debts amount to 1,350,000 euros. It'll take more than my lifetime to pay them. The wine crisis is such in Bordeaux, in France in general, in traditional wine-producing countries in general, that the way the French used to drink wine seems to belong to a lost world. An archive newsreel dating from 1956 about banning wine in schools. Until then, it was common for children to be served wine in the school canteen, especially in the countryside. And that ban was just for children under the age of 14. The government didn't stop drinking in school for older children until 1981. Wine was seen as a fortifier. It would give you strength. Workers would often be given a litre or two a day. But in the 1960s, attitudes started to change and consumption to 
decrease as people realised how harmful alcohol was for their health, a decline that has steepened in recent years. Jean-Philippe Perrouti runs the French arm of the consultant's wine intelligence that has carried out its own research on wine drinking. Wine consumption has been declining in France in the past 60 years, every year. Between 2000 and 2015, wine consumption was declining by 1 to 2 percent per year. Over the past seven years, it's decreasing by about minus 3, minus 4 percent per year. And there's a big generational gap between boomers, so those aged 55 years and above, and those who are younger. Younger generations drink twice less. Second thing, more than half of the volumes of wine drink in France are drank during a meal. This proportion is probably decreasing. This probably explains why red wines are decreasing a lot. We estimate that in the past 50 years, red wine consumption has probably decreased by about 50%. White wine has been decreasing, but maybe by 20%-ish. And rosé wine has actually increased a little bit, between 5 and 10%. So we're moving towards lighter styles of wines, basically. But surely not in Bordeaux, a place whose name is synonymous with red wine. So I've come to Bordeaux to do some serious research. It's apéro hour, the hour of the apéritif, happy hour, I suppose, in English. And I'm just outside, I've been wandering around looking for a cafe. This is, seems like a good one. It's called the Carnival Cafe. Loads of young people sitting out on the, uh, on the terrace, drinking in the evening sunshine and a quick glance across the tables and I can tell you that like nobody is drinking wine. So on your table you have a Ricard, a Coke, a wheat beer and we had a fruit beer just before. When we drink wine it's a party rosé. Sunny day rosé, swimming pool rosé. That's really nice. Red wine is more for special occasions. The market is changing then, and some Bordeaux winemakers are adapting. And in the mouth, you have a little bit of structure. Yep, yep, it's quite a lot of tannin, actually, at the end. My name is Estelle Rumage. I'm the owner and winemaker at Chateau Lestrie in the Entre-de-Mer area. Uh, it's a company that's been in the family since 1901. I'm the fifth generation. How's the way that you've been doing wine? How has it evolved? So when I came back on the estate, uh, we went from two hectares of white wines to 15 hectares now. So I've really increased the quantity of white wines that we produce. Then Dad had always been interested in nature. He was doing sustainable wine growing. We've gone a little bit further since I've taken over, which has ended up with us being organic. Now, the whites and rosés account for half of my production and the other half is in reds. So. Are you managing to sell your reds? Um, it's not easy, but yes, I am managing to sell them. We, what I see is that I sell less of the entry-level red wines and I sell more of the, the wines that have been aged in barrels or uh, have more complexity 
to them. So they retail in France, they retail at around 13 euros a bottle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And last year, for example, that's the range of wines that has increased the most uh, in my in my sales, mm. when the one that sells for nine euros a bottle has been very stable. Back with winemaker Bastien Mercier, our conversation is interrupted by a phone call about hams. It's the ganguette, he explains. A ganguette is a thing that used to be really popular 50, even 100 years ago, a place out of town, often by a river or a lake, where you go on summer evenings to eat, drink and dance. He's opened one. It's not just the wonderful Estelle Roumage who has all the good ideas. And Bastien shows me a video. Of fun-loving French people whooping it up, and bien sûr, bottles of Bastien's wine on the tables. Maybe he won't have to drink his surplus after all. John Lawrenson, DW, Bordeaux. It's turning into quite a boozy week on Inside Europe. We are off to a precariously located bar in Bucharest in just a minute. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Cheers. <laughs> Ever since he was a teenager, Radu Bogdan Matei had a dream. It was nothing particularly far-fetched or grandiose. It was simply to open what he now calls a listening bar. His inspiration for his venue, which opened earlier this year in Romania's capital Bucharest, was drawn from the concept of an old Japanese jazz kisser. That's a type of private cafe that thrived in Tokyo and Kyoto between the 1950s and 70s. But now... Radu's dream is in tatters, and it's all because of Romanian earthquake legislation. Stephen McGrath brings us this portrait of the last days of a doomed enterprise. In many ways, despite its overtly sleek, minimalist design, Radu's bar, named Barton, is like any other. It serves coffee, an array of alcoholic beverages, and tapas-style food. But the venue's structural pillars are clad with a broad selection of carefully curated records. High-tech speakers hang from the walls, and a large DJ booth punctuates the centre, bringing music to the heart of the venue. This place like, lit up my imagination. So I, um, yeah, I, I took the jump, uh, basically. It's, um, I decided inv investing all the money I had kept, I had kept aside for a new business. I, I quit my day job and uh, I, I went full in. I've lived uh, throughout Europe for the past 15 years and I've, I've returned to Bucharest hoping that I can um, make my home um, a better place. You can talk with people, the music is not that loud, you can have conversations, you can... Yeah, it's... In my opinion, it's amazing. It's clear that a lot of thought has gone into the design and style of the place. It almost feels as though it could have been here for many years. It has an established feel to it. There's a nice story behind the, um, the look of this place. 
the building we're situated in is part of the larger Sala Palatoliga building complex. This was the the first generation of Romanian-built uh, social modernism. Before the 60s, uh, most of this type of architecture was imported from Moscow. But this was built as a as a showcase for what Romanian uh, social modernism could be like. Since he opened, Radu has received mostly beaming feedback from punters, and the bar is gaining traction. But his dream venue is in peril. Just before he was set to open in September, he received some heartbreaking news. Romanian lawmakers had just passed legislation that will force countless businesses in Bucharest, including Radu's bar, to close due to a looming threat that plagues the capital. Earthquakes. Bucharest is vrnerable to earthquakes because of its proximity to the Vrancia fault line, which can produce powerful quakes of up to eight magnitude on a Richter scale. The unexpected news, just before he opened, hit Radu hard. That was a horrible day. Uh, we were just finishing up the space. Most of the work was done. I had the, um, some of the construction guys were on site, so uh, when I found out, I almost burst into tears, so I had to uh, take a walk so the, the guys wouldn't see me cry. Bucharest is Europe's most earthquake-prone capital. The last devastating quake to hit this city was in 1977. It was 7.2 magnitude and killed around 1,500 people and injured 11,000. Previous quakes here, just as strong, occurred in 1908 and 1940. So they tend to strike roughly every 35 years or so. Today, 46 years have passed since the last big one, and the next one looms large. Many of the old buildings suffered significant damage in the previous quakes and have not been consolidated to make them safe. For years, the authorities have appeared to be at a bit of a loss on how best to address the issue. Since I found out, it's been a difficult time for me. The uh, thing is that I've, I've always been on the on the right side of, of the law, and now I've, I suddenly found out that I've, I'm on the other side of, of the fence. I'm, I'm trying to keep the, this bar open, and, but the law prohibits me, so I'm an ill-doer now. The eight-storey building in which Barton is situated, on the ground floor, which boasts scores of apartments above, is classified as a seismic risk class 2. That means that it could suffer irreversible damage in the event of a strong earthquake, but would unlikely collapse. Seismic risk class 1 buildings, however, of which there are more than 350 in Bucharest, are a different story. They sport large red warning spots on their facades and are at imminent risk of collapse if an earthquake of 7 magnitude or higher strikes. Still, the law does not prohibit people from living in buildings deemed class 1 or class 2. Commercial spaces in class 1 risk buildings were stopped from operating in 2015 due to the risk, but that was extended to class 2 buildings this summer. It was a full year's work, and we had quite a large team assembled. We, were, um, we had three architects. Um, we had um, um, somebody handling all the, the music side. We had um, a team that did the acoustics. We had a team that did the ventilation. A few doors down from Radu's bar is bike and board shop called Borders. I went to speak with the manager, Bogdan Bodescu, to get his thoughts on the situation. They just close all the economical activity. A lot of people which are very affected. We're not talking about entrepreneurs. We're talking about employers. It's a chain, a reaction, you know what I mean? The only way is to attack this at the constitutional court. Bogdan is quick to point out that while stopping commercial activity could protect some people if a big earthquake hits, many people living in this building and many others like it 
are at much greater risk than passing customers. Actually, the main issue, from my point of view, is not about the commercial activity. Uh, it's about the people, actual people, which are living here 24 hours per day. They are much more exposed. Families, uh, children, whatever, you know. And this is all around the city. Radu has already received his cease and desist order from the authorities, but he has been able to remain open due to a technical error in the legal order which he has challenged in court. But the uncertainty is impacting his mental health. It's taken toll on me, to, to, to be honest. I initially tried keeping it a, a secret from, from the staff, but eventually I, I had to tell them that uh, we have this insecurity and we might be shut down at any point. But I, I try insulating them from the pressure. I've sought legal support from from a couple of larger uh, legal consultancies in Bucharest, and they basically told me that uh, the way the law is written right now uh, doesn't offer any loopholes. So basically any sort of activity is prohibited within these sorts of buildings. We're expecting to be shut down at, at any point. So um, I have no idea what I'll do after that, but I'm, I've mentally already taken the hit. I'm, I'm prepared to look for a job, I guess. If, or more likely when, he permanently closes his doors, not only will his dream be crushed, but the financial loss he'll have to incur is also eye-popping. I think that the sound system itself, not counting the, the sound treatment and the walls, I think it was maybe 60, 65,000 euros. That's my dream. I, I felt I had to do it. It was my, uh, my duty to uh, carry out my dream. Even the design of the chrome-clad bathroom here, including the bespoke audio inside the toilet cubicles, has been planned down to the last detail. Breathe slow. Concentrate on your thoughts. There is nobody else in this bathroom with you. The feedback has been amazing in this past month. I mean, um, people seem to love the place. I think we should find a way to um, gently communicate to the government that the current legislation is untenable and it would do way more harm than good. But this, there should be a, an implementation plan, there should be a financing for it. We, we should have the, the, the state capacity to actually uh, redo the buildings. And none of that uh, is in place now. There is no need to worry. I'm Stephen McGrath in Bucharest for DW. Everything will be all right. Closing time for us too, for this week at least. The feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. Our podcast is available on all the usual platforms, including YouTube, via DW's new podcast channel. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.